You don't need to be a bioengineer to help change the shape of humanity. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Uh, Eric, there was an announcement recently by kind of a big company formerly known as Facebook, now known as Meta Platforms. And I'm curious what your your take was on all of that, because what I saw was a company rebranding itself and the market just kind of went nuts for this idea of the metaverse. Yeah. You know, I'd heard of the metaverse. I mean, this is not a term I was unfamiliar with. And when I saw the announcement, I kind of thought, well, I, Facebook's really been, that name's kind of been through the mud and maybe they were just trying to like make an easy like new start. But when they did that, what happened that really caught my attention as an ETF analyst is the ETF with the ticker Meta, which I assume Facebook probably wanted but couldn't get because it was taken by the Roundhill Ball Metaverse ETF, um, started to see flows very quickly. Like, And I thought, well, maybe people are like accidentally buying it. But over the past 16, 17 days, it just takes in more and more money. It's very reminiscent of hack after the Sony Pictures hack, where this news event becomes a catalyst moment for a theme. It's the perfect situation. And Meta was right there waiting. And I'll give you some numbers. It's now grown by sixfold since it, you know, the Zuck moment. And it's also seen volume grow by 50 times. The options activity has grown by 45 times. This ETF is becoming. It's just, it's basically done what you want to see in two years in about three weeks. Which is impressive. So joining us on this episode of Jones, we've got Matthew Ball, the guy behind the ETF meta. Also joining us, Matt Canterman, an ETF analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, where he's also the co-host of a podcast called Into the Metaverse, along with another Bloomberg Intelligence guest, Rebecca Sin. This time on Trillions, exploring the metaverse. Mr. Canterman, Mr. Ball, Rebecca Sin, welcome to Trillions. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Okay, so Matthew Ball, I want to start with you. Last time you and I connected a couple years ago, you wrote like an article for Bloomberg Business Week, and then all of a sudden, like you're back with an ETF. What's been going on, man? Quite a bit. I mean, funnily enough, the article that I wrote for Bloomberg was on the ongoing and soon to be precipitous decline of Hollywood in the box office. This is like before times. It was like 2019, pre-pandemic. It was certainly pre-pandemic, but it's a good way to look at the metaverse, which is through my career, I've jumped a few different times. At one point, I was a wildfire fighter in initial attack, if you can believe it. But I've spent most of the past 15 years jumping from what I saw to be the new thing. At one point, that was the digital apps economy. Shortly thereafter, it was digital communities. 
I then moved into SVOD a few years before the streaming wars began. And then over the past five years, I shifted over to video gaming and that very cleanly brought me to the metaverse, albeit at a time in which I still thought it was 15 years away from fruition and at least five years from the public consciousness. And so what came first, this ETF or or the idea of of just, you know, putting a finger into what what this space could look like? So I've been writing about the metaverse since mid-2019, but it was mid-2020 in which this as a macro super theme started to become an idea that investors would start to look at this. And then in the ensuing months in the back half of the year, we had Roblox file their S1. It was the first time in which we had the metaverse really driving a story to the street. We also had the IPO of Unity. Those two combined were some of the biggest IPOs the gaming industry had ever seen. They very quickly became some of the biggest companies in the gaming industry. And that gave us a lot more confirmation that now was actually the right time for an ETF. And so we began in late the second quarter of 2020, devising the methodology behind the index. In the third quarter, we began doing initial conversations with various ETF providers, secured that in the first quarter of 2021. But to be honest, even midway in the second quarter, we were concerned that we were too early. We didn't think we couldn't have a viable ETF, but we thought that it was largely going to spend a year or two proving itself from a returns perspective, but struggling to actually penetrate the average investor, certainly institutions, but even many retail investors. Um, and just before we go to Meta here, for those of us who are the uninitiated, how do you even attempt to explain what the metaverse is when you know we're very early innings in what may transpire? It's a good question. And obviously, I'm asked quite frequently. The honest answer is I tailor it to the audience. And that's based on the varying degrees in which they're familiar with the internet, its antecedents, and so forth. But I think the most fun way I have to describe it is a riff on Daniel Ek, the founder and CEO of Spotify. He talks about the first 15 or 20 years of the consumer internet as being this relentless quest to break down anything made of atoms and convert it into bits. Think of your alarm clock. We all used to go to bed with an alarm clock on our nightstand made of atoms. And then today, we actually go to bed with an alarm clock on our iPhone on our nightstand. We converted an alarm clock from something made of atoms into something made of bits, software. This next stage, the metaverse, you can think of as reconstituting that alarm clock using bits, but into virtual atoms. There's a broad belief that that is a more intuitive model of interaction. You can take a look at 40 years of the internet's history and see it's constantly shifting towards more tactile, more immersive, more visual experiences. In much the same way we started on the internet representing ourselves with a username and email address, sharing via text messages, message boards, slowly shifting to limited web pages, then profiles full of photos, video streams, Instagram stories. This next step is shifting online existence, commerce into virtual 3D objects. And I just follow up on that because there's a really important point that Matt just made. Um, and you can check out, we've talked about this extensively on our podcast, Into the Metaverse, but the metaverse is not a device. You know, it's not defined by any individual access point. And there's a lot of misconception that the metaverse is a VR headset. 
or it's an AR goggles. And that's not the case. The metaverse is device agnostic. The metaverse is the internet. That's what Matt was saying. It's enabling the internet with real-time 3D software. Unity likes to put out a stat that today, 2% of the internet is enabled by real-time 3D. And whether you think the CEO is, is full of it or not, there's a trend in the direction. He thinks that in 10 years, 50% of the internet will be enabled by real-time 3D. So you're talking about making the internet, exactly as Matt was saying, much more immersive and much more um, 3D enabled. And, and that's really the metaverse. Again, it's not a device. It's a really important point to make. And so, um, you know, as somebody who has a 10-year-old kid, he plays Roblox. I've seen it. He loves it. He plays with his friends. That's the metaverse, right, Matt Kenterman? Absolutely. Roblox is like the only pure play in the metaverse right now. It is a virtual, social, shared, persistent experience platform. That it, That is the definition of a metaverse platform. Now, there are ways that they can make it more immersive. There are ways that they can enhance that experience. There are ways they can do more from the business side on the monetization. But Roblox is, you know, Roblox, Fortnite, what Tencent's done with Honor of Kings. Um, you know, these are some of the leading metaverse platforms out there today, even Minecraft within Microsoft. And, and so absolutely, the metaverse exists today. But, you know, we just interviewed Craig Donato, the chief business officer on our podcast, and we're still in the first inning. You know, if you put this in baseball terms, we're not even close to getting out of the bottom of the first yet. And so uh, let's put this into dollars and cents. Your job as an analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence is to try to find out the opportunity for investors who use Bloomberg Terminal. So in one of my recent notes, I actually, you know, associated one of your bits, which talked about how the metaverse would be uh, have a revenue of eight hundred billion by twenty twenty four, estimated by you. Um, how do people make money in the metaverse? Explain that. So, you know, our our forecast for the metaverse reaching eight hundred billion by twenty twenty four is really driven by the consumer facing client applications. You know, I thought Matt and his team with Roundhill when they were marketing the ETF did a good job of explaining that. And from that perspective, it's actually quite a conservative forecast. So we looked at you know, four key areas, you know, from one hand, the metaverse is clearly growing out of online games. It's clearly the evolution of games into these shared social experience platforms. And so we looked at the online games market, which includes the software revenue, the services revenue, the advertising revenue. It also includes engine, the, the game engine, the real-time 3D software, which is so important. We looked at, um, you know, social media advertising, you know, the metaverse platforms are going to be the next social platforms. They're going to eat into the advertising revenue of these big social platforms. So we took a big chunk of that. We looked at live entertainment, which I think is a really burgeoning opportunity, like such as virtual concerts, which alone is targeting a 30 billion opportunity just within the concerts. So that adds in. And then it's also the hardware that really you use to access it. Although it's not any specific piece of hardware, the hardware clearly plays a piece and that adds up to 800 billion. But there's so much that we haven't scratched the surface on. We didn't touch enterprise. We didn't touch education because these are more long-term opportunities where the monetization potential is still questionable in terms of direct revenue. And then there's also, you know, secondary items such as, you know, the cloud services that back all this up, the telecom services that back all this up, all the infrastructure that goes into building the actual networks that power the metaverse. That's all behind the scenes. That doesn't even touch. So when when Tim Sweeney comes out and says the metaverse is already a trillion dollar opportunity. It absolutely is when you start including all of those secondary and tertiary markets. And Rebecca, let me bring you into this. Um, as a new member of our team, and I advised you to be bold and say interesting things in your notes, uh, I think your fifth note said that Metaverse ETFs could have $80 billion in the next 10 years. <laughs> that is bold. I mean, honestly, I would say maybe 8 to 10, but you went for the the home run there. I guess with inflation, you definitely could uh, get a little help there. But what's your logic to that? I'm I'm wondering if you just were hanging out with Matt Cantor at all too much. 
So I remember when that note first came out and you laughed at me. You said, Rebecca, are you crazy? And in hindsight, this was before Facebook had rebranded to Meta and before Korea launched their ETFs. And I really genuinely thought that the market could be this large. And so I had predicted that the ETF Meta space would become 80 billion and that could potentially be 600 million in revenues. And in November, after Korea launched four new ETFs, so on October 12th, Korea launched four new metaverse ETFs, and it was the one of the fastest growing ETFs to have gained 100 million. So to give you some context, in Korea, two of their ETFs, Samsung and Mirai, reached 100 million in assets in just under two weeks. So it was around six days. And so this is a record number of inflows. And in early November, I had published that the metaverse space would reach 2 billion. And this was achieved actually earlier this week. And looking at Meta, you know, Meta has seen inflows of 700 million, but even in the Korea space alone, between the four ETFs, they've already surpassed 650 million in assets, and they only just launched less than one month ago. And so I really believe that this space has a lot of potential. In Asia alone, we have other regions like Australia, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore that are all looking to launch metaverse ETFs. And so the appetite in Asia is huge. And so I can see that this market could really reach 80 billion. Yeah, and I think, Eric, it's important to talk a little bit about where the long term can go here. And I think that there are a few different perspectives. First is Matt's, where he talks about how much of the potential metaverse economy sits outside of the consumer-facing applications. Well, the UN estimates that the global economy, 85 to $87 trillion, is roughly 18% digital. Now, of course, the GAFM or big tech five companies, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft are about 1.3 trillion of that. The truth is that the vast majority of the digital economy sits outside of those big five companies. And in fact, we know that outside of that 18 to 20% of the global economy that's digital, much of it is still powered by digital technology. Over time, we have seen the percentage of the global economy that is digital go up. My expectation is that that will continue to go up, in part powered by the metaverse, as the metaverse also gains share of that digital portion. Jensen Huang, the NVIDIA CEO, has said that he expects the economy of the metaverse to eventually exceed that of the physical world. In other words, he's talking about a future state in which the global economy is perhaps 95 to $100 trillion, and 50% or more of that is in the metaverse. That seems a little large to me, but it doesn't surprise me that investors are so excited to invest in this theme. Technologists, business owners, investors have come to terms with the fact that the internet caught many of us by surprise. The mobile internet came much faster and proliferated faster than we anticipated. Cloud was more disruptive. Just as business leaders have learned about disruption theory, investors have learned about the pace of change, the enormity of a platform shift, and they're preparing. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I have three visions in my head. You tell me which one is probably the most where we're going. One is Ready Player One. The oasis where one thing kind of becomes like the where everybody puts on their goggles and they all live in there 
and yet society crumbles around them. That's probably like a dark vision, but that's one. The other one is more like Mark Zuckerberg's commercial on Good Morning America, where he's sitting there in a meeting talking to people. Hi, how are you doing? Like Zoom, but like you're like a robot or like a fake version of yourself where he's wearing the skeleton outfit. Then the other is something like Roblox, which I see my son playing where he's two-dimensional and he's sort of interacting. I I guess I'll throw this to Matt Canterman, you know, because I saw you shaking your head. Like, um, you know, what... If, especially with Matthew Ball saying that that, that much of the uh, total revenue could come for or total um, economic activity could come from in there, it seems like the oasis would be the vision that would exist. No, 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 I don't think so. I think that is a way to access the metaverse, but it's not the way to access the metaverse. I mean, you know, if you just think about the iterations of the internet, right? We went from web pages to you know social to mobile. And now we're entering the metaverse era of the internet. And really, we're just enabling everything that's out there with real-time 3D software and making it more social and more persistent. So an analogy would be, for example, you have Facebook, you know, you're scrolling your wall or Instagram, and it's all photos and posts. It's all static. It's 2D. It's not immersive. You're not interacting with it in live time. Imagine if that was a virtual bulletin board and you and your avatar were walking around and pinning things to the board and others were coming up and reading it in live time and the changes they make affect your board. That is a metaverse in theory, right? And then you talk about the business opportunities around that. So it doesn't have to be locking yourself in a headset. It doesn't have to be putting yourself away from the world. It's, it's just a new way to interact and immerse yourself with others in a virtual world. I kind of love this question of anchoring in science fiction because, of course, the metaverse comes from Snow Crash. And many, especially critics, tend to highlight the fact that all of the most popular conceptions of the metaverse or a virtual future come from dystopic science fiction novels. I find it funny because, of course, utopias aren't the best situation or construct for human drama by definition. There's a reason why we don't find many sci-fi novels nor any novels at all that are set in a Pacific perfect version of the future. It's a good narrative device. But to take a step back, I think one of the most interesting things about asking this question of what does the metaverse look like, a question many people ask, is that innovation is recursive. This is actually why disruption is so threatening to today's companies. A technology is created which leads to new behaviors, which leads to new use cases for that technology, which leads to follow-on innovations, creations, emergence of new business models, new companies. If you went to 1995 or 2005 and asked someone, what does 2021 look like? The closest you'd get to today was essentially platitudes like more people online more often from more places with better broadband. You don't get people describing TikTok, which now owns the Billboard 100. You certainly don't get the expectation that app-based trading platforms with zero commission would lead to YOLO options trading on the subway because you're bored, which simultaneously rescues a company from bankruptcy. You don't get the idea that the most popular real-time 3D rendered experience globally would be battle royale games that didn't even exist until a few years ago. Innovation is recursive. It inspires. It is responded to. And so I think we can take a look at some of the early conceptions of the metaverse. The truth is it will probably look, feel, and change our lives in a way we can't anticipate. 
No one thought that social media was going to lead to election engineering by foreign states in the way that it did. And that's actually what's going to happen here. It's the threat. It's the opportunity. Okay, so I want to ask another type of question, which was, and and Matthew Ball, I'd love your perspective on this. Facebook, embroiled in this massive, massive scandal, basically pulls a rabbit out of the hat with like maybe, you know, uh, a rebrand that will in, you know, when we look back on this for years, like it could be like the the greatest bus- business case study of all time if they pull this thing off. Or it's Facebook, now formerly Facebook, also known as Meta Platforms, and all of the problems and societal issues that we've been grappling with in this Facebook context are now just amplified to the nth degree because now it's all in the metaverse. So where do you rate the the rebrand scale of one to 10, 10 being greatest thing ever? Well, I think Mark has received some criticism as to whether or not this is a sleight of hand, whether his interest in the metaverse is new. And I think that misses a lot of context. Two years after he acquired Instagram for a billion, he acquired Oculus VR for more than twice that sum. In 2015, he reportedly tried to purchase Unity, now a $70 billion game engine company. A few years ago, they acquired a company called Control Labs, the leader in brain-to-machine computer interfaces. They have been investing in this and other technologies for many, many years. His interest in this concept is certainly not new. I also want to highlight that Mark is actually a survivor of the pre-mobile era. Facebook has become a case study for the speed with which a company can pivot to mobile, but that history often forgets he was late to mobile. Why? Because they bet on HTML, not apps. In 2008, Apple launched the App Store. In 2009, they came out with their famous campaign, There's an App for That. In 2010, Sesame Street parodied that campaign. And yet it wasn't until 2012 that Facebook actually launched a native app. Before then, it was a thin client based on HTML. Mark called that in 2012 the biggest mistake in the company's history. Within one month of rewriting the app to native code, time in the Facebook feed doubled. Imagine that. Imagine just changing your code and doubling engagement in an engagement-based platform. Now, they survived. But what did happen? In 2009, when Facebook had 350 million monthly active users, WhatsApp was founded. It was specifically founded on being app-based communication. They ultimately bought that company for $14 billion. It's now believed to be the most popular of the Facebook constellation of applications. What I see in this rebrand is a manifestation of many, many years of investment and belief But most importantly, someone who understands the threat of platform shifts sees an opportunity to grow. They've been stymied by their lack of an operating system. They have a business model predicated upon one very flawed business model. And so he sees opportunity. But I think there's a genuine belief that this rebrand can be an important signal to investors, to partners, to current employees, to potential employees, and to consumers. It's very dangerous to have one of the most valuable companies on earth and tell every shareholder, you should now evaluate me on a thing I say is five to 10 years away and which I am going to incinerate $10 billion per annum in pursuit of. 
Whether or not Meta is the right name is not particularly interesting to me. I'm no branding expert. I look at whether or not this is new. I don't think it is. Whether or not it's important, I do think so. And whether or not it has utility and irrespective of the specific name, I do see that. It's a powerful signal. Can I just translate Matt into cynical financial analyst speak? Because I have the same view, but from a cynical perspective. And it's that you know, when Facebook was in the web era, they were the walled garden, or if not one of the large walled garden platforms. And everyone wants to be the walled garden because you get to clip coupons for free on other people's spending and, and commissions on app stores and whatnot, right? When we went to mobile, they lost being the walled garden. You know, they have great, powerful platforms, but Apple and Google and others really became these pla- these walled garden platforms. And so the cynical view is also they see the metaverse as this opportunity to reclaim that position in the market. And, you know, as Matt was saying, build out ancillary revenue streams beyond advertising from devices and content, but also from creating an app platform that where people come to them and pay them and they take commissions from other people's app spending. I mean, look, that's assuredly true because the business model on their new devices requires that behavior. Whether or not you want to say it starts at one end or the other is, I think, a, a question of determination, but certainly the history of companies that are disrupted or stymied does lead to philosophical change. Brad Smith at Microsoft, the president, has said Microsoft was on the wrong side of open versus closed. One can very fairly wonder if Microsoft had not been largely boxed out of the hardware and operating system of the mobile era, they would have had that change of perspective. I think that's absolutely valid. And that's the nature of any person, frankly. If I'm Mark Zuckerberg and I'm going to make this pivot and it's going to be a big pivot, there's one ET, there's one ticker that I would really love to have if I'm going from Facebook into the metaverse. And that ticker seems like it would be meta, but that ticker was taken by you. How many times have you heard from Mark uh, or Facebook to try and get the ticker that you got first? Not once. Not once. Come on. Just like just random briefcases of cash show up. Does that count? Well, we've gotten a number of briefcases in cash in creates, uh, many of them. And I I think a a good deal of any metaverse oriented companies, R&D budget might be might be well positioned to bet there. But no, the, the response has been from investors. Okay, let me let me pivot there to another Mark Zuckerberg question. I'll throw this to Matt Canterman since I know you, you spend a lot of time in the metaverse. Last time we had you on about video games, you you were uh, he was like you know, gaming while he was on the yeah on no the you're podcast. like the, you're you're like you're in it. And so there's a Elon Musk put this tweet out which had Mark Zuckerberg in his like you know in, during his explanatory video, except the caption said, "If you die in the metaverse, you die in real life." And okay, fine, it's funny, but no, it's, it it's taps true. into. <laughs> it's true. It taps into this sort of, I don't know, um, I think Matthew Ball said earlier, dystopian, this idea that we're all going to like live in there. And what are the consequences to humanity of like putting all of our spirit in this fake world? If you take it from a high level and you look at what's driving consumer demand for these sorts of experiences, it's all about self-expression. In the real world, we wear the clothes we wear, we buy handbags, we buy other things because we want to give off an impression of ourselves to others around us. We want those items that we wear, that we buy, that we interact with to tell a story about ourselves. 
And in the metaverse, in the virtual world, it's the same thing. What your avatar wears, what they look like, what they do, the, the dance moves they do, um, the, the items they wear. You know, in, in Roblox, somebody paid the equivalent of 4,000 US dollars for a virtual Gucci bag. It's not an NFT. It's not something you can take out. You can't sell it. You can't do anything with it, but it just is an expression of their virtual self. And they thought that value was enough to justify that. So, you know, when I think about it that way, although you may not physically die, you know, you have an emotional connection to this avatar that you've created of yourself in the metaverse at some point. And at that level, when that character dies, you can feel something from that. Uh, Rebecca, what do you think the resale value for that $4,000 Gucci bag looks like? So I think coming from a female Asian perspective, you know, Asians do love to shop and females do love their shopping bag. I'm surprised Hermes hasn't jumped on this and come up with a virtual Kelly or Birkin because I'm sure that would sell much more than the Gucci bag. But I definitely think there's a market for this. And what's interesting is looking at the ETF space from an Asian perspective, most of the flows that we've gotten is from retail. And this is a shift from where you normally see growth. So usually in the ETF space, it's institutional clients that are supporting this. But in Asia, most of the flow in Korea is all from retail, more than 90%. And the head of ETFs at Mire, Mr. Jun, said that since the simultaneous launch of four meta ETFs in Korea last month, the theme has garnered much attention from retail investors and the media. And so companies are actually in Korea are actually spending money to further develop the R&D and capital investments. And so in Asia, retail is a huge market. You know, the Chinese market drive the retail population. And so I think there is huge potential, especially in Asia, for this growth. So actually, let's just stick with you for a little bit, because I want to talk about sort of what what's inside the ETFs themselves. Right. And like you, you mentioned the ones that have popped up in Asia, but we've also got Mr. Balls here. What stands out to you in terms of like what companies the ETFs are actually holding? So in Korea, the market is ultimately trying to support the Korean market. And so for all of these four ETFs, they've picked Korean companies. And so, for instance, Hubei, which is one of them, it's a uh, it operates in the entertainment space. And so Matthew and I were actually debating this last week, just saying, you know, do you really consider these companies metaverse companies or are they just entertainment systems, entertainment companies? And so I think it really depends on what your definition is. For instance, in Taiwan, they already have ETFs that they consider are metaverse ETFs, but it ultimately comes down to what your definition of metaverse is. And I think everyone has a different definition. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You know, my son at one point wanted to get um, paid for chores in Robux. 
and that was my first indicator that this is like a really a big, you know, uh, something that was, to, you know, something to watch. And when I think of crypto as being the sort of like internet, you know, money that, that can be uh, seamlessly transferred, is is Robux or whatever might be used in the metaverse uh, um, a threat to crypto or does cause crypto actually plug into it? Um, uh, Matthew Ball, how do you see that? That, that sort of like playing out with crypto in the metaverse. It's interesting. I think it's very frequent to hear this conflation of Web3 or crypto with the metaverse. I tend to think that it's a bit like conflating industrialization or electrification with democratic republics. One is a technological process. The other is about how we organize in society. Where these two themes intersect is about what the metaverse economy needs to thrive. And one way to think about that is the old adage, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Well, in most central server models, you can never take possession of anything. You don't own it. Where it is, is on a central server with a central database saying, you, Eric, have this thing. It can be deleted, it can be removed, they can disagree, it can be seized. You can never take possession of it. And note that in the real world, the fact that you have something in your possession doesn't mean the government can't take it, but we reflect that the vast majority of the power goes to you holding it. The perspective in the crypto community is that blockchain technology for NFTs and assets is critical to ensuring the requisite property rights and trust in the market for investment. Are you going to buy a $10,000 parcel of land or $2 million avatar that you can never truly take possession of, that you have no guaranteed rights to, and in a dispute, the owning party can just take it from you until a court forces it back to you, you, individual person who makes $20,000 per year? These don't require decentralization as a solution, but decentralization is the increasingly deployed solution with rapid adoption and, crucially, a considerable amount of revenue behind it, which seems to drive more adoption from developers and, in turn, users. And ultimately, and this is a key point, for all of the failures and struggles and gas fees of crypto, standards don't necessarily win because they're the best. We saw that with Betamax and VHS. They win when they are considered legitimate and adopted en masse. That is what we are starting to see here. You know, applying decentralized blockchain and NFT technology as an economy is really a business decision for whether it's a game or a metaverse platform. It's not an enabling technology at its core. You can do a lot of the things like providing transferability of items between experiences. You know, if Roblox and Fortnite wanted to make it so you could move items between them, they could do that today without a blockchain. They don't need NFTs to do that. It's just another layer of ownership and, and really having that decentralized, you know, no one owns it, but you uh, mantra that goes with it. That's the real difference. Yeah. I mean, I love talking about interoperability and sharing and exchange because there are really severe tech problems and hurdles. One of my favorites is actually just to talk about this you know, epistemological question or ontological question about what is an avatar? Does an avatar have clothes? Is an avatar with a hat an, actually an avatar with a hat or is it an avatar that has an object known as a hat? Does an avatar actually have skin? What color is the skin? Is that a separate object? Does a gelatinous jellyfish and a bodybuilder avatar 
move in the same way. We assume no, but these are actual technical decisions that have to be made. When you copy an image or I send you a JPEG, it's just bringing visual representation, but 3D objects require rigging and motion. And so when we are talking about interoperation and sharing of objects, we are talking about a hard problem of technology. However, the harder problem is always policy. It is business. Technology can be solved. You could scale up with machine learning. You can compress. You can simplify. You can say, your world has rigging. Mine doesn't. I'm just going to import it, and they'll be the same for me. The challenge is always business policy. One of the reasons why we see such network effects in crypto is to some extent, developing means giving up that. You can't actually develop something and then control what people do with it. It's Lego. Similarly, when you take a look at the virtual world platforms of Minecraft and Roblox, the fact that their interoperability is essentially federated has real technical limitations in that you can't do everything you might want to do as a developer on Roblox, but you do benefit from the network effects of everyone else. And part of the problem here is this path of interoperation with crypto from non-crypto, from closed platforms to other closed platforms, many, including Mark, have said that they want to do this, but there's no roadmap for how you do that. Um, okay, Matthew Ball, I want to bring it back to ETFs a little bit here and and actually talk about your, your holdings. How do you decide what goes in this? I mean, you have, I, I looked up the index, uh, you have an expert council. Who's on this expert council? How do you decide who gets in the ETF and how do you figure out what the holdings are? Sure. So the Ball Metaverse Index, which is behind the Roundhill Ball Metaverse ETF, is a passive thematic rules-based index. We have detailed methodologies under seven categories, hardware, networking, compute, virtual platforms, payment rails, content assets and services, as well as interchange standards. You can think of that as your Unity and Unreal. We define those seven different categories based on the core stack that you see in the internet, which powers virtual worlds and metaverse experiences today. We allocated value or weightings to each of those categories, not equivalently. Because if you take a look at the history of the internet, you'll see that the value or the revenue pools differed quite significantly over time. If you take a look in the 1990s, almost all of the revenue from the internet was in hardware and networking. We weren't buying Netflix subscriptions. There wasn't PageRank with keywords being assigned to it. You were buying a Dell computer, an AOL, or Xfinity broadband. And so we had to weight each of those seven categories. How we come up with the rules for each company that's scored within them is our proprietary IP. But it's assembled by this expert council. And for context, the expert council is a council of experts. We have the former lead of NVIDIA's enterprise cloud streaming offering, the person who launched uh, launched Amazon's instant applications, former head of developer relations and content strategy for Oculus, former general manager of Steam, former general partner at Andreessen Horowitz in their crypto division, led their crypto school, former executive from Spotify, the co-executive producer, lead game designer of Grand Theft Auto, Red Dead Redemption. This expert council, only four of the seven of which I've just described, came up with this methodology. And the belief was, the reason why I hired this expert council was essentially a reflection of why the ETF exists in the first place, which is the enormity of this transformation 
which spans trillions of dollars in every country, in every industry, is far beyond one person, myself, or even a handful to truly understand. Then trying to systematize that in an index is even more difficult. And so we spent about eight months building out this rules-based methodology, which we then maintain over time. I'm happy to say that among all US-listed ETFs, we have the second highest ranking of Roblox, has been a good look recently, the fourth highest weighting for NVIDIA. And among our top four holdings, all of which I would consider to be the leading metaverse companies today, Roblox, NVIDIA, Unity, and Microsoft, we have the largest combined holdings. Now, one of the challenges with the ETF right now is it is very differently weighted from QQQ, but it still has many of the same tickers. And I think that there are a few different important points there. Number one is two of those top holdings, Unity and Roblox, were not public last year. That's a good reflection of how this ETF is likely to change in the future. While all of the triple Q companies are pretty up year over year, Unity and Roblox were valued at less than $5 billion a year and a half ago. They're now $50 and $75 billion companies. So our expectation is that the new companies will grow. But the nature of a multi-decade change is why you need a diversified portfolio and why the composition of this index will change as the metaverse changes which companies lead globally. And and I would just add that, you know, we also expect a lot of these companies that are private that are, you know, key metaverse companies like Epic Games will eventually go public at some point or another. You know, it's right now there's unlimited and basically infinite amounts of private capital for them to stay private. But, you know, at some point that private capital will want an exit. And so, you know, it's 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 almost a certainty that at some point in the next few years, a company like Epic will look to IPO and probably will, be, will join the index for you guys, as well as for us, our Bloomberg Metaverse Index and become a key, you know, a key uh, holding in those indices. But as much as we will see more and more of these companies sort of, you know, go public or enter uh, Matthew Ball's index, I don't know if there could have ever been a bigger gift than uh of rebrand of a company going from Facebook to Meta and just having this massive catalyst moment, uh, uh, Mr. Ball. And I'm just wondering, had that not happened, where would you be? It's a good question. I mean, and I think Eric teed this up. There's certainly been some attention, especially in the first few days, as to whether or not the increased inflows were just erroneous trades. I think the assets have been incredibly sticky. We're now at 18 consecutive days of inflows. Those inflows have grown from five to 50 to 60 to 88 million in a day as we get farther and farther from that release day. The critical answer is if you actually take a look at crypto, and this is the most important, metaverse-oriented tokens have grown far, far more than meta and almost universally. What this tells me is that the spotlight placed on this theme, for which we could not have purchased on this time frame, is what's driving the inflows. Greater recognition of the size of this opportunity and its magnitude. But I think it's important to diversify away from meta platforms here. Yes, in July, Mark started talking about it. Then at the end of October, he rebranded. But what has happened since? Well, NVIDIA has gone from a company two years ago very few people knew to several months ago being the ninth largest company on earth. It's now the sixth largest company on earth. Jensen talks about the metaverse more frequently and with greater enthusiasm than anyone else. 
So you've now got the seventh and sixth largest company on earth. Microsoft, the largest company on earth, Satya Nadella went on a tour, released videos talking about his vision for the metaverse, how his company is going to transform. A few days ago, Google announced that it was reconfiguring its organization for the XR, VR, Google Play team, Google Labs, and Area 120, their special projects group, were going to be reorganized into a new reporting unit. We don't know exactly what that looks like. It sounds like the metaverse to me. In addition, Amazon started rewriting their job postings in ML, in hardware, in their wearables division to talk about the metaverse. Reports have come out from Morgan Stanley and others trying to estimate if Facebook Reality Labs is spending $12 billion per annum on the metaverse. What is Amazon doing? Their estimate is 6 to $8 billion per year. Apple has filed more patents in the last year relating to display technology than in their history. That is metaverse-related investment. I absolutely believe that Facebook has catalyzed interest in this thing, but that interest has been constantly reaffirmed by the most significant, powerful, and stand-to-lose companies on earth. And if you look at some of the, like the share price moves in like Roblox and Unity recently, they didn't budge when Facebook rebranded to Metaverse necessarily, they moved on earnings. And I think what was really impressive aside from short covering, because I think there was a lot of short covering that you know catalyzed 40% stock moves. But you know, I, I think if you look at Roblox, there was a lot of concern. I had this concern that not only would every all the metrics tail off as we emerged from the pandemic, but the engagement, the hours of engagement per daily active user on the platform would fall down. People would go back to spending less time on the platform. And that's not the case. It's actually going up still. People are now spending more time than they did during lockdowns in the second quarter of 2020 on Roblox. That's one of the most encouraging data points that you can see for this company, because that really proves the viability and sustainability of these platforms as not only games, but as social experiences. Okay, Rebecca, I want to ask you a question right before we wrap here. You wrote a note that Eric... Uh, found a little bold. Now that we've had this conversation, how do you feel about that number, which was what? 80, 80 billion, was it? Yeah, my ETF number was 80 billion by 2024. And I think that we might actually reach this. And the reason why is that, especially in Asia, how people define metaverse is a lot more broad. So for instance, if we look at Korea, the four Korean ETFs that launched track the FN Guide K Meta Index and the iSelect metaverse index. And so these are really companies in the tech space, anything from social entertainment to live entertainment to technology companies. And in Asia, we can expect more metaverse ETFs to come just because they take a much more broad definition of what the metaverse is. And if we look at this from a performance perspective, uh, for instance, in the past month, the Korean ETFs have a one month return of 36%. And so the retail investors are loving this. The returns are phenomenal. And if we compare this to Meta in the US, in the past month, Meta has performed 17%. And so for ETFs, for investors, a lot of people just jump on the bandwagon. You know, Metaverse is a thing right now, I'm gonna invest into it. But what I love about ETFs is that it's really about the details. And so for each ETF, even though they are branded as a Metaverse ETF, the underlying is actually drastically different. And so for Asia, the Korean ETFs are solely focused on the Korean market, while for the Taiwan ETFs, it's solely focused on the the Taiwan market. And so as investors look to the Metaverse, you know, they really need to be selective in what they want. And 
Unfortunately, not all ETF issuers can have the luxury that Matthew Ball has by having a very exclusive set of metaverse experts on their committee to select the index. And I think that's what's going to be the differentiating factor. And you're really going to see a difference of that in the return and performance of the index. So I think this market is going to continue to grow. Facebook has definitely held my prediction and pushed it to get retail interest. And I think we might actually hit this. Okay, Matthew Ball, I'm going to wrap with you. We asked this question of of many guests on the on the on the program on the podcast. Uh, favorite ETF ticker that is not your own? Well, I think the the easy comp would have to be Hack. Er, Eric served that one up to you on a platter. Mm-hmm. So well, we well we done. talk about it a lot. Just out of curiosity here, where where else can you go with Meta? How many other ticket tickers do you have in your back pocket that are Meta related? I don't have any, but the the crew at Roundhill are experts in ticker selection. They have filed for meme, for weed. We'll see if they can get that one through on Nisi. But those guys are absolute pros at what they do, but ticker selection has to be top among them. Matthew, Matthew, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us in Trillions. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.